This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand On Air. To find more local content, go to our website, accessradiotaranaki.com. Good morning, New Zealand. Welcome to all my listeners at Access Radio Taranaki, Coast Access Radio, Radio Hawke's Bay, Arrow Radio Masterton, and I'm your host, Neville Wallace, broadcasting from Hara for the next 30 minutes. The year has a Christmas feeling, and so have I. So I only have one contributor for today, and that contributor is Jim Hopkins. So for the next 30 minutes or so, we'll be discussing the year that was 2023. Well, with me this morning is Jim Hopkins. Counselor, playwright, radio host and author, taking a look at what's happened over 2023. Good morning, Jim. Ah, yes, Neville. How are you, dear boy? I'm fine, Jim, but I'm wondering how the rest of New Zealand is. Jim, I just had a quick read of the NZ Farmer and I noticed that councils are having a problem with money to upgrade their local water responsibilities. I've spoken to one or two. Would you like to explain to the listeners what the hell's going on here, please? Because well, yes, I would. Um, look, I'm perfectly happy to do that. Um, I mean, there are basically two words that no one will understand, um, but I'll start with them. The two words that explain everything are unfunded mandates. In other words, what that means is rules that other people ram down your throat without any money to actually pay for enforcing them. So what's happened over the years is that Wellington, Parliament, various governments, um, to be perfectly honest, largely left of centre, not right of centre, but certainly both, but more more so left of centre, have said water standards or qualities must be improved. Standards must be raised and improved and and, uh, we have to have better stormwater systems, we have to have better... Um, sewage systems, we have to have better delivery of drinking water. Now, there are areas where there are deficiencies. There's no question about that. Um, there are areas where uh, people are uh, probably using old stock water supplies and drawing water, drinking water from them, and perhaps um, the standard of water quality isn't absolutely um, 100%. But, you know, in the same way that people in other countries get their immune systems respond to threats and overcome them, the same thing has happened for people who've lived for generations in a community. But then you get a school party or visiting tourists or something and they come down with some vehement affliction. So anyway, long story short, the government has said over the last 10, 15 years, raise your standards, approve this, um, treat that, process this, have protozoa have, uh, barriers, chlorinate, blah, 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 and all of these rules have been imposed without any money from Wellington to help councils actually do the work and put in the pipes and put in the treatment plants and put in the processing systems. Now, it's, it's really simple. If I keep telling you that you have to do all sorts of things around your house, uh, you know, to make it more acceptable to your neighbours or to the community at large or to the environment or to the United Nations or whomsoever, um, but, we, but I don't give you any money, you're quite likely to get a bit grumpy about that at some point. Well, that's what's happened here, and, and that, in large measure, is why um, councils are struggling. 
There are councils, and I won't deny this, there are councils. Wellington's a glaring example. Frankly, the sooner they put a commissioner in there, the better. Um, I mean, seriously, those people are an embarrassment to local government. They embarrass me. They embarrass hundreds of councillors and smaller councils. They should be ashamed of themselves, and they should resign en masse. But um, places like that haven't delivered and have, have actually neglected invisible infrastructure. Other places, there's simply, you know, um, a kind of unaffordable chasm or a, a, a yawning chasm between the number of people available to pay the bill and the final cost. And in some instances, if people have basically delayed or postponed or um, staged improvements, largely to make sure that, their com that, that the cost of their communities is affordable because, Wellington, the government, won't share its money. What, what people listening to your program don't and won't understand, I, I suspect, is that something like 92%, I stand to be corrected, it may be 89, but it's, it's a high 80s or low 90s, something like 82 or 90, uh, high 80s or low 90s of all public spending comes from central government in New Zealand, a very small amount comes from local government through rates. And the and central government will not share the money it gets in taxes and GST and all the other charges. It, well, sorry, shares it with roading, but very little else. And the problem that, that councils have had is basically they've had to do the work, make the upgrades, improve the standards, but nobody other than their ratepayers sometimes in councils that aren't very large with a, and don't have a big population, that no one, no one available to pay the bill except those ratepayers. Now, the new government has said there will be a contestable fund to help councils meet these new standards. The key question, and no one knows what the answer is yet because they haven't told us, is how big will the fund be? Because if it ain't big, then it's, no, then it's useless. Or ne next useless. It'll be a little help, but it won't solve the problem. Yeah, the, 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 the brutal truth of the matter, Wellington, um, um, Nev, is Wellington will not share. It makes rules, it imposes standards, it obliges, it bullies everyone else, but it will not actually share the benefits of, or the share the income that it collects compulsorily through taxation and other systems, GST and the like. Yeah, and that's that's largely why councils are having problems with money to upgrade their local water responsibilities. Right. Have I answered your question, sir? Yes, you have. And the other thing I was just going to add to that, James, yes. is the fact that a lot of the uh, infection that they're talking about, and particularly E. coli, is not animal sourced. A lot of it is bird sourced. And oh, that... absolutely. Yeah, no. Look, I agree with you. And... Um, and there's a, there's a, you know, look, um, I can recall going to a place near Christchurch called The Groins, which was a wonderful sort of, uh, I mean, to some extent, I think it was a, a natural water system that had been enhanced and captured and modified by sort of damming and rechanneling and so on. But it was a wonderful place to take kids, and everyone swam there and enjoyed it. There were all manner of activities you could indulge in. And lots of ducks whizzing around and landing on the water and being perfectly happy and so on. Now that, that area is now off limits because ECAN did some testing, you know, um, oh, yeah. back in the day and shock horror. Oh, E. coli. No, no, no. We can't have it. 
Now, basically, most of the E. coli was all those lovely ducks flapping around, <laughs> alighting, alighting on the water and, and you know, avoiding their bowels. I mean, but, but, but that's actually how people build up resistance to the threats that the world poses, you know. I mean, everyone knows that, that people in India don't come down with all manner of afflictions, but the tourist turns up in India and drinks the water or whatever, That's bingo, cool. they get a galloping affliction because their immune system hasn't had the opportunity to build up resistance to the stuff that the people who live in India or elsewhere, I'm not picking on India, don't get me wrong, but the, but people haven't had the opportunity to build up resistance to the, the, the natural, the entities in the yeah. world yeah. that don't, that aren't there for our benefit, you know? Um, I, honestly, I can't, I get so frustrated with some of this. I mean, we, we cannot live in a sterile world. And yet, increasingly, we have health authorities and experts insisting that that's what we must do. And it's neither logical nor, in the end, beneficial to human beings. Kids need to get dirty. Kids need to put grubby fingers in their mouths to basically build up a resistance to the bugs that are all around us all the time. I take it you ate your fair share of worms when you were growing up like I did too. <laughs> I, used to, I used to eat them. I used to eat worms. No, I didn't. I don't want people to think that. Now, now, Jim, I've heard you commenting about our, I would call it, what was I going to say, we'll call it ridiculous climate change yes. against... And I don't know whether you followed it, but in Iceland they've got volcanic eruptions that are sort of oh, yes, lifting yes, yes, yes. the surface. We've experienced that here in New Zealand. Oh, we lived through a, a earthquake in Christchurch ten years ago. Yet there is not as much knowledge about those sort of activities, which I believe we should be realising. Lining them up against the so-called climate change emissions. Yeah, What's your yeah. thoughts on this? Because I heard somebody ask you the other day about what did you think about all the water that we're getting. You know, I think you said something about a Tongan eruption that shot a lot of water. Oh, the... well, well, exactly. I mean, now, I mean, my, look, my view is, and and I, it's it's yet to be confirmed, um, but I suspect that in the next few years. You'll have a whole lot of academics suddenly saying, oh, my goodness me, that eruption in Tonga, that subterranean eruption, which apparently was one of the most significant and biggest underwater eruptions ever in human recorded history. Yeah. Gosh, that had a huge effect on the weather. We know that Krakatoa, we know that all manner of previous historic eruptions have had a massive effect on world climate for a period of time. We know that there was, um, when after Krakatoa erupted, there was... Um, the year they describe as a year without a summer, or or two years, and this is in Europe. We know that Roman um, astronomers noted changes in the atmosphere and behaviour of the clouds and and weather and and um, rainfall and so on that that coincided with the massive eruption in Lake Taupo. You know, um, in uh, either late late BC or early AD. We know these things. So, so 
this assumption that the Tongan eruption had no effect on weather and climate and so on, or none so far, we look, the Canterbury University published a paper not so long ago saying it made that, that eruption blew a massive hole in the ozone layer and pumped, I, I wish I had the number in front of me, um, but it was millions of millions of millions of tons yeah. of water into the atmosphere. And, and uh, the presumption that these things will have no effect on climate and no effect on rainfall and no effect on ocean temperatures. There's an American, there's an Australian emeritus professor, Ian Plimmer, who, who is, who challenges a lot of the climate change orthodoxy. He's written papers that I've read suggesting that this, this event has had a lot more to do with the recent weird events we've had, Cyclone Gabrielle and Co., and the huge wetness and the, and the um, repeated massive downpours in the North Island and so on. He suggests that this is much more intimately related to that Tongan eruption than it is to, you know, climate change generally. And to be perfectly honest, I suspect he may be right. But I also suspect, you know, Greenpeace and co. love to bag anyone who challenges uh, climate change orthodoxy on the basis, oh, you're in the pay of the oil companies and so on. I also suspect an awful lot of the academics at the moment are essentially <laughs> required by governments to blame everything on climate change. I can remember doing a TV science program and there were some guys doing some work in Antarctica and I remember these guys telling me quite quite openly and honestly, we have said that this is about climate change research. It isn't really, but we said it was in order to get the funding. Now, that was, that was probably a decade or more ago, and, and I suspect that orthodoxy is now more entrenched than it was even then. So all, all I'm saying, look, all I'm saying is this. There's a hell of a lot more to climate than just people driving around in motor cars. Because no one was driving around in a motor car when the English Channel didn't exist <laughs> and when and when Dogger Land actually was a land bridge between Europe and England and a, a shallow, fertile area where hunters and farmers actually operated and hunted and so on until the last ice age about eight, 9,000 years ago when sea levels rose to, the, to such an extent that the English Channel was created and a landmass linking England to Europe was flooded. Now, you know, these things have happened before and they have not been the consequence of human intervention or action. I'm not suggesting that we are absolutely innocent or that we haven't had any influence on climate. But there are things that have influenced the climate historically over the four billion plus years of Earth's history that have had a that have that have not had a damn thing to do with human beings driving motor cars or going on holiday or planting crops or raising animals. And every damn television program you see about climate change that shows you factory chimneys belching smoke and or steam is a visual lie because climate carbon dioxide is invisible you can't see it so this what they are doing is creating an anxiety using a visual image that is fundamentally actually 
inaccurate and, more importantly, totally dishonest. It is dishonest. Parents, tell your kids it is a lie. It is a visual lie that you are being shown and delivered, served up day after day, week after week. And, and it, is, it is dangerously influential and wrong. When we come up, when we come back after the break, we'll listen to Daddy Parker sing, and I'll be coming home with bells on. thoughts on climate change you must share a portfolio with Shane Jones because he was talking along these lines the other day he said we've got to spend more money doing things so we can adapt like clean that drain out clean that slip out clean that rubbish out of that grate that's going down the street so all that water can run away into those pipes that are made underground for them well look, look I, I agree now, um, you know, it's, oddly enough, you won't believe this, but I had a conversation with various people at a, um, a, a we were, there was a local event where we had a, a marquee um, promoting water quality and water management and improvement of wetlands and estuaries and so on um, in our area yesterday to public awareness and, and increase information or increase public awareness and provide information. Oddly enough, I had a conversation with somebody who's a climate change officer for a local council about precisely this matter. And in my view, um, uh, I believe our emphasis should be on dealing with it and and um, and managing it and responding to it uh, and adapting to it. Now, rather than saying, "Oh, you can't do it," "Oh, you're evil," "You're wicked," you know, that's. New Testament morality, and essentially it won't work because, um, I mean, in the end, people uh, are self-interested and will always tend to do what is most convenient and cheapest and easiest for them. I would like to know, you being a journalist, what did you make of the swearing-in of the new parliament? Oh, well, um, I don't know if you... Well, the swearing-in of the new parliament was exactly that, the swearing-in of the new parliament. If you're talking or asking me about the conduct of some of the people at the swearing-in, then um, my view is, and I'll have no 
um, anxiety or apprehension about identifying the Maori Party. Guys, if you don't like it, don't stand. You know, if you're going to be so outraged at the idea of swearing an allegiance to the king or whomsoever as a consequence of being in parliament, don't bother standing in the first place. Their behaviour, in my view, was offensive, ludicrous, and, <laughs> and objectionable. And the thing that frustrates me more than anything else is with the possible exception of Mike Hosking, who's coughed nervously and challenged it, there isn't a single media commentator who has said, you guys are a bunch of posturing fools. And I'm sorry to say it, but that's what they are. Because not only did they do this convoluted swearing to their, their um, Taylor Fenua and the like, not only did they do all that, but at the end of the day, when it came down to actually being an official member of the New Zealand Parliament and making speeches as an official member of the New Zealand Parliament and casting votes as an official member of the New Zealand Parliament and trousering a pay packet as an official member of the New Zealand Parliament, they did exactly what they had to do and said, I swear allegiance to the king. Well, you know, sorry. If it's so objectionable that you actually feel you shouldn't do it, then don't bother seeking election. Now, what did, you, what did you make of the speech that James Meager or was it Majors made? Oh, very. Uh, I, look, I'm really impressive. Um, I, I hadn't heard it, but basically I'll tell you why. I've stopped watching most news programs on television. I just can't be bothered. I mean, they're so biased and so one-sided um, that I, yeah, I, I, I have actually proposed starting a, a, a campaign called I've Stopped Watching. Um, and in my view, uh, a lot of those channels, a lot of those news channels don't deserve an audience because they won't actually own up or analyse their own bias, yeah. own up to or analyse yeah. their own bias, Just, and they won't actually allow challenge. However, that said, I was... Um, I did note the sort of uh, public support for and endorsement of his opening speech, so I've gone online and had a look at it and read it, and um, very impressive. It, you know, if you want a, a simple and simplistic suggestion, I think, I mean, this is very early days, and it may be too early to place too much expectation on any, on any one individual, but it does seem to me right at the outset that James Meager has potential, or uh, Major, whichever you, pronounce, uh, whichever you yeah, yeah, right. prefer, but he has the potential, in my view, to be the politician that Winston Peters could have been and should have been. I mean, in my view, Winston, if he'd only known how to get on with people and been a bit more consistent with his political focus and ambitions, he actually, in my view, could have been New Zealand's first Maori uh, Prime Minister. But um, he was so busy settling scores that he actually ended up shooting himself in the foot uh, more than anyone else, in my view. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I think... I, I, I mean... Uh, Mage is right. Um, you know, uh, he, he talks as a part Maori and says there's a stereotype that if you don't think a certain way, if you don't agree with a certain worldview, which is a Maori worldview, then you don't belong in it. And I just disagree with that. 
We're all individuals. And, indeed so. I mean, I, I, I've written columns saying it is arrogant and presumptuous and ultimately false for someone to talk about my people. And yet you have Maori politicians particularly making that claim. No, I'm not, I'm not aware of any Chinese, Pacifica or European politician who makes that claim. But you have, um, you have Maori politicians regularly and repeatedly making it. And in my view, um, there is as much diversity within the Maori world and there is much difference of opinion within the Maori world as there is in any other. You know, um, this, notion that the, this notion that there is one single, unified, unassailable Maori world view is a position... Um, essentially, uh, Peter's is right, it's essentially a position advocated and advanced and sustained by academics and elites. And, and, and I'm sure it doesn't actually reflect the majority. I mean, I, I can, I remember a politician talking to me some years ago, admittedly right of centre, but he said something that really struck me at the time as being very perceptive. And it, and I was reminded of it when I read the um, the uh, James Major, Major speech, where he said that um, that uh, members opposite uh, don't own the poor, they don't own Maori, they don't own the workers. I was reminded of this politician who said basically back then his quote was "Labour farms the poor for their votes," and mm. I remember thinking actually. There's a rather uncomfortable amount of truth in that proposition. Yeah, Jim, we've just and about got one minute left. Oh no, uh, sorry, I no, didn't realise it. Have I babbled on too long? Have I babbled on too long? No, you haven't. You made a great contribution, Jim. But one quick question: Who's your ag person of the year? And then we'll have to wrap it. Right. Okay. Um, I've thought a great deal about this. Um, I suppose it depends. Now, look, um, it will depend to some extent. My answer depends to some extent on, on who you think your audience is. Who. Um, you may or may not be aware there's a program that's broadcast on um, the ZB network, um, and it plays in every uh, market except, I think, Auckland, Wellington and Christchurch, and that's Jamie Mackay's show, The Country. And, and um, I, I would nominate... One of two um, contributors to that. Mm -hmm. um, one of them would be um, Professor Jacqueline Routh, who I regard as a still small voice of calm. She's an academic who challenges the um, orthodoxy of academia brilliantly, successfully and um, incredibly. And the other one I would nominate is Jane Smith, who has been, I think, the most passionate and... Um, effective advocate for provincial and um, agricultural uh, farming sector and provincial New Zealand throughout the year. So um, if I have to have a, I'd like to have a joint first equal. Um, if you push me into a corner, <laughs> I'd probably go Jane Smith. As this is our final show for the year, I'd like to say thank you, Jim Hopkins, for your contribution to my program. Merry Christmas, Jim, and we'll catch up in 24 Neville, thank you very much. It's been an honour and a privilege to be um, part of your show. I know you've got millions of listeners. <laughs> Merry Christmas to you, to Shona, and to the huge global audience that enjoys your show on a nightly basis. <laughs> <laughs> 
So remember to tune in next week for my penultimate show for the year and Professor Jacqueline Rath takes my place and asks me for my thoughts on the year that was. So, looking forward to next week. See you again. This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand On Air. To find more local content, go to our website accessradiotaranaki.com